Then they left that district and went straight through Galilee. They came down out of the foothills skirting the base of the mount where he'd burst into light, down through those rolling brown undulating waves of the earth, until they could see the tossing waters of the Galilee darkening under the evening sky, its wind waves lapping against the empty coast. They camped that night along its southwest shore. In the early morning, they were up, walking northward. The daylight rose, warm against the right side of their bodies. Their opposite side was cool still, with shadows and dawn. The birds were calling in the trees to their left, the gulls to their right. The water was breathing its morning breath of freshness. Fishermen were heading into their home ports. The distance kept the sound of their voices perfectly quiet, muted. The disciples were quiet too, tired out. They walked along, just putting one foot in front of the other. And Jesus kept this journey secret from those others who'd been following last evening, for he had a plan for teaching his disciples during this day's walk. He began the instruction during the middle section of the morning. He began teaching them that the Son of Man would be betrayed into the power of men, that they would kill him, and that three days after his death, he would rise again. And though he'd said all this before, quite memorably, in fact, on that walk back south from Caesarea Philippi, he was all the more intense during this telling. He would speak for a while and then stop, collect his thoughts. Then he would start briskly walking and talking again, sharply. Then again, stop, consider to himself. Then begin to walk again and to speak again with today's peculiar intensity. The disciples followed, listening in his train. It was interesting what each of them would remember later. Consider just a couple. Simon Peter remembered his quoting from the words of Isaiah. He shall be oppressed and be afflicted, yet he will open not his mouth. He will be brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he will openeth not his mouth. What stuck out to Peter was the transposition of those words from the way he knew them in the past tense speak of the prophets into this future tensing of the immediately to be realized. Perhaps it explains his own word association written decades later. When he was insulted, he offered no insult in return. When he suffered, he made no threats of revenge. He simply committed his cause to the one who judges fairly. And he personally bore our sins in his own body on the cross, so that we might be dead to sin and be alive to all that is good. It was the suffering that he bore which has healed you. You had wandered away like so many sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's what Peter would remember. John remembered him turning toward the sea and quoting from King David. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax 
It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Then he grew quiet and whispered the final refrain. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep him alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. All of this would come to mind for John months later as he stood beside the ladies, saw what happened, and heard those final words. It is finished. Today, John walks along in silence, pondering. For they were all completely mystified by his saying about a resurrection, and yet were afraid to question him about it. They were afraid because of the way his voice sounded saying all these words. They, they were afraid because they were afraid of looking stupid in front of the others. So after a time, he walked off far ahead, and they let him have some space, some time to himself. They lingered back and walked at a pace that suited their mood. And in this way, they came to Capernaum. They arrived into town in the early evening. They walked around the western edge and directly up the path that led to the house of Simon Peter's wife and mother-in-law. The view to the east was mellowing with the coming darkness. The night would be still and cool. And when they were indoors, he asked them, What were you discussing as we came along? He asked this question with a half-smile. They were silent. They took off outer, outer cloaks and unshod feet with an air of, well, What was that? I didn't catch that for a moment or two. You see, on the way, they had been arguing about who should be the greatest, i.e., who would hold which role in the kingdom of heaven. Or, in other words, they imagined the kingdom of heaven to be precisely like the kingdoms of earth, earthbound, powerless, somewhat silly. Their minds were trapped in the trappings of the known and already seen. Their overall view continued to be limited. Jesus sat down and called the twelve. They crossed the room silently and took their places in a circle circled around him. He regarded them for a long, long moment. And he said to them, If any man wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He leaned back, reaching toward the windowsill. He took up a clay cup he had set there and took a slow sip of the new wine. Then his eyes brightened. The door had opened. In was coming a family from just outside Capernaum. The youngest son of this family was a favorite of his. Jesus beckoned him to come over. 
Then he took this little child and stood him in front of them all, and putting his arms round him, smiling, near breaking into laughter, said to his disciples, Anyone who welcomes one little child like this for my sake is welcoming me. And the man who welcomes me is welcoming not only me, but the one who sent me. He gave the boy a tight squeeze, spoke a blessing under his breath, and then let him run across the room back to his mother. The disciples were considering what he'd said. He always enjoyed their looks of such deep consideration. Then John said to him, Master, we saw somebody driving out evil spirits in your name, and we stopped him, for he is not one who follows us. The partisan spirit, the everlasting curse of the desire to denominate around Jesus, was unnoticed by the one who spoke this. But Jesus replied, You must not stop him. No one who exerts such power in my name could or would readily say anything against me. For the man who is not against us is on our side. In fact, I assure you that the man who gives you a mere drink of water in my name because you are followers of mine will most certainly be rewarded. He pointed across the room at the boy from just before. And I tell you too, that the man who disturbs the faith of one of the humblest of those who believe in me would be better off if he were thrown into the sea with a great millstone hung round his neck. He stood from his seat and walked across the room, parting a pathway to the kitchen, and cut himself a slice of, uh, from a loaf of bread there. He stood there, looking out the window, thinking to himself. He quietly ate the bread and then looked down again. He picked up the knife and turned back, facing them. Indeed, if it is your own hand that spoils your faith, you must cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to keep both your hands and go to the rubbish heap. Then he pointed with the knife downwards. If your foot spoils your faith, you must cut it off. It is better to enter life on one foot than to keep both your feet and be thrown onto the rubbish heap. He set the knife on the cutting board and walked back over. He resumed his seat where he'd been before. He looked deep into the eyes of all in the circle. And if your eye leads you astray, here he acted out the action. Pluck it out! It is better for you to go one-eyed into the kingdom of God than to keep both eyes and be thrown onto the rubbish heap where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Something has caught his eye. He reaches toward the table and takes up a small clay bowl of salt meant for uh, finger-pinching into serving dishes. He holds it up for all to see. For everyone will be salted by fire. He takes a small pinch and sprinkles it into his mouth. He moves his tongue, allowing all the flavor of the salt to register with his taste buds. He puts the bowl back down on the tabletop, points at it. Salt is a very good thing. But if it should lose its saltiness, 
what can you do to restore its flavor? He stands to his feet and leans over toward his little audience, pointing at them with two fingers extended. He says to them, You must have salt in yourselves and live at peace with each other. Within the hour, they'll be having dinner together on the hillside veranda. It was a lovely night. The stars were especially brilliant in the sky over the sea. The moon was now at crescent. 